our children's volunteers, they're not in the service. Uh, they uh, serve our children and serve you as well so that you can be here and, and that you can worship and uh, so that our children could worship and learn more about God's word uh, in their context and which elements we have. So um, our passage today is from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. So if you have a Bible, we are going to read Luke chapter 9, 1 through 9. So we're back in the book of Luke and uh, kind of continuing our slow... Um, exploration and journey in the book of Luke. We'll be in this book uh, for the remainder of the spring into, into May, and then in June we are starting a series in the book of Ecclesiastes the entire summer, and then we'll be back in the book of Luke in the fall. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap of the teaching ministry here at Redeemer over the next several months. So this is Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not have two tunics. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Whatever they do not receive you, when you leave that, that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, but some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are again very thankful for this morning to be in your house, Lord. Lord, I am encouraged by the fact that the greatest performer, the greatest singer, is a congregation of believers. Some could be, and maybe have better voices. We could have a performer up here who could entertain us, who could sing maybe better in the way that somehow people value or, or evaluate singing. But when your congregation comes and gathers and worships and praises your name, you are pleased. Lord, we are encouraged by that. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we come before you and enter into your word, I pray that you would teach us, Lord, encourage us, challenge us, convict us. Lord, lead us to repentance. Lead us to faith. Reliance and trust in you. Lord, I pray for students who are taking exams this next week. Lord, I pray for them. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would give them clear thoughts, that they would remember what they studied. Lord, I pray for those who have just graduated from college or are about to graduate from high school in the next several weeks. We pray for them as well as they enter into a new chapter in their life where some are going to be living here, some are moving on and got jobs in other cities. We pray for them as they transition. We pray, pray that, that you would lead them to faithful churches, Lord, that you can use them. Lord, I pray that we would always as a church be here to encourage those who been a part of us for a certain amount of time, Lord, but you have taken them away. But I pray that we would always be an encouragement and a, and, a, and, a, and a means of prayer on their lives. Lord, we praise you. We love you. We pray for those who are sick or traveling or with other um, issues. We pray for those who are full of praise and thankfulness, Lord, in their lives. We pray for them as well. We pray, Lord, that you would use all things in every one of our lives to bring you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, see, if that uh, microphone, how that camera is not on, if you would turn that on so that those who are not here would like to listen online or maybe later on during the week, they can actually hear. Um, it may be already online, but for some reason, I just, I don't think I turned it on. I'm going to start, I read it, um, I, I don't know if you know this, but the, the Melvin family, uh, Christina Melvin, who is not interested in she is from Romania, she's from Eastern Europe. Uh, and I haven't really talked to her much about her childhood or growing up in that part of the world. Uh, I've been to Russia, which she doesn't like, um, but I've never been to Eastern Europe. And I read an article uh, this week in the Atlantic uh, magazine about the war in Bosnia and the, the Serbian war that happened in the early 90s. If you were a 90s child and you were born in the 90s, you probably don't remember this, this war that the American, uh, well, it was when President Clinton was president. It was a time when America, we weren't really, we were involved in the war, but we weren't really, we didn't send troops into, into Bosnia to, to fight the war. We kind of were part of some UN airstrikes, never really boots on the ground. But it was a conflict that was in the news pretty regularly during that time, kind of like early 90s to 95 is kind of when the war ended. And, so I read this article, and I didn't know, I mean, I was a child, I was like in elementary school when this war happened. I knew about it, I remembered it, I remember watching a movie that came out like in the late, in the late 90s with Owen Wilson, uh, and, and, and Behind Any Lines, which was kind of about that, that particular war. So that was all that I remembered, um, but there was a particular figure that was very prominent in that peace talks from America that I had never heard about until I read this article this week. And his name was Richard Holbrook, and he was the Assistant Secretary of State during the Clinton administration. He was actually in the State Department up until the time of President Obama, but he actually had a heart attack and died while he was having a, a meeting with uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton. He had a heart attack right there in the office and died uh, right then. But he was a figure that much of us probably had never heard of his name, but he was very prominent in uh, bringing that war to an end. And so the, the, the title of the sermon is Pax, which is, means peace, Christendom, the, the peace that Christianity brings to the world. And so Richard Holbrook, again, like I said, was the Assistant Secretary of State. And if you don't know much about that part of the world, of Eastern Europe, it's an area of the world that is basically in a group of people that have been uh, kind of transitioned to empire to empire. So, and uh, during the... Uh, 14th century, the Ottoman Empire, which was growing in its strength, the Ottoman Empire was this empire that came from Turkey, it was the great Islamic empire during the Middle Ages. It came into Eastern Europe and it, it took over that part of the world. And some of those people became Muslim. They, they were converted to Islam by the Ottoman Empire. Now others in that area, the Serbs, became Orthodox Christian, and then the Croatians were Roman Catholic. So you had these three different religious sects in the same part of the world. And you can pretty much guess they didn't agree on a lot of things. But yet they shared a similar region of the world, a similar land. And they fought over it. Well, in the early parts of the 20th century, before World War I, the, uh, these groups of people pushed out the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was slowly <laughs> dissolving as an empire towards the in the 19th century and into the 20th century, and by the end of World War I, they, the empire was pretty much conquered, and a lot of their land was distributed to the British and the French, and to the other, other Western European countries. 
And so, after the Ottoman Empire was taken over, these groups of people fought over this land. And so, in the 1980s, the Serbian, the Serbian people, who were, again were Orthodox, wanted to take over the area of Bosnia, which is this land in between Serbia and Croatia. And they wanted to kill all of the Bosnian Muslims who were not Serbian, who weren't Orthodox. And so uh, they slowly started to ethically cleanse or genocide an entire race of people because of a religion that they held, and they wanted the land. And so obviously the Bosnian Muslims fought back. And so that was the Bosnian War in, in the 1990s. And so the, there was this fight, and there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands that were killed, I believe. Um, I don't have the exact number. Maybe Christina, maybe, I don't know if you know the exact number, but there's a, a lot of people died in this ethnic cleansing. And a lot of times the American government at the time, President Clinton especially, they, the American government really didn't want to get involved, right? They didn't really want to decide an ethnic cleansing or decide who should own the land. Right? They seemed like that was something they shouldn't get involved in. That was a European issue, not an American issue. But some, like Richard Holbrook in the State Department, wanted there to be peace. He believed that the American government and the American military should get involved and bring an end to the killing. Because obviously killing is not good. And he believed that we should get involved. And so uh, at the time, um, Warren Christopher was the Secretary of State, and he sent Richard Holbrook to Bosnia to interact with different leaders of these different sects who were fighting against each other. And so he, uh, he goes there, he meets with all these different leaders, and he was a man who was, who was, who was described as always in motion. He was someone who was always urgently trying to push for peace. He never allowed the leaders to get complacent. He always was urging them and pressing them and being persistent that they would seek peace with one another. So in 1995, he persuaded the, the, the three major leaders of this war, the Croatian army, uh, Croatian, the leader of Croatia, the leader of the Bosnian Muslims, and the leader of Serbia, to go to Dayton, Ohio. Yes, Dayton, Ohio. Not Paris, not London, not some other major, uh, major European or international city, but Dayton, Ohio. They go to the military base, right, Patterson Air Force Base, to have this peace talk. And so he is a man, Richard Holbrook was a man, basically the, the President Bill Clinton and others basically said, it's up to you, we're giving you authority, we're giving you power, we honestly don't care what happens. And they cared, but it wasn't on their priority list. But this man, Richard Holbrook, was so uh, enamored and so uh, dedicated to bringing peace to this part of the world that he was basically a man on an island who was trying to persuade these three men to stop killing each other. So he spends three years of his life, three years of his life, sleeping very little. It says that he slept very few hours a night, almost three years, persistently seeking peace in this part of the world. And so eventually, after a long period of time, almost a month, in Dayton, Ohio, these men agreed to certain, certain boundaries and land, and there was peace. There was a ceasefire, the killing stopped. This particular part of the world that no one cared about, this, this obscure area of the world where literally the consequences of peace or war had very little due to America. Like, we did not feel 
evidence or any results because of the end of the war. To be honest, like, I, was at, I was in fifth grade when this war ended. I don't think I received any benefits from the peace. But this man, Richard Holbrook, cared so much that he persuaded these men for peace. And basically the article comes to an end and it says, sometimes the American government, if it doesn't have any high national interest, then we don't really care. He says, if we were too brash and bold at times during the Cold War era, we are too complacent or indifferent and cautious today. So the point that we were so involved during the Cold War, but now we don't really want to get involved. We, we know the, the issues of Vietnam, we know the consequences of Vietnam, and we're so afraid of what happened in Vietnam that we don't actually get involved in any issues and try to bring peace. The article said we become, America has become flabby and smug and self-absorbed. Did any country ever combine so much power with so little responsibility? Slowly and pregnant at first, we lost that essential faith in ourselves. And I think that's a, that's a good uh, sentence or a good paragraph to describe maybe the church today. We have become, we know the past, right? We know the, the, the evils and the issues of colonialism, where mission work was a part of all that. And while, yes, the, 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 the Navy ship from Britain and Germany and other places went to different parts of the world, and missionaries went with them, but a lot of times they also came with military might and conquered and conquest. At that time, we were culturally ignorant and inconsiderate, but yet urgent, persistent, dedicated, and empowered. Now we have a pluralistic world, or more culturally considerate, yet we've lost faith in ourselves and have become complacent, cautious, and self-absorbed. Not interested in things that we don't see any immediate benefits. The call to be sent out as proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ is an essential element of the church's being. A church is not a sent. A church that is not going is not a church that is actually reflecting its actual nature and being. If the church is, in, is complacent, cautious, and self-absorbed, we fail to live out our essential identity as a church, the community of Christ, Christ's body, sent out into the world on mission. There is no other church than the church sent into the world. If one wants to maintain the specific theological meaning of the term mission as foreign mission, its significance is, in my opinion, that it keeps calling the church to think over its essential nature as a community set forth into the world. Seen in that light, missionary work is not just one quiet activity, but the criteria for all its activities as a church on mission. A church that is not on mission is a church that is not being the church. So after all that, the main idea of today is that the 12 disciples were prepared, empowered, and sent by Christ. The community of believers also must be prepared, empowered, and sent out to extend Christ's mission. So point number one is calling and preparation for extending Christ's mission. So what do we have here? We have these 12 disciples. Before we even get to chapter 9, we know from their story that their story as a, as a collection of men did not start in chapter 9 of Luke. Right? We, we know that Jesus has been with these men for, several, for, for quite a long time. And it started 
Really, it starts in John chapter 1, 35 through 37. They're followers of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God. It basically says, go follow him, follow Jesus, because he's the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. I am not. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. You should follow him instead. So a few of them followed Christ. Now, Andrew, who is a follower of John the Baptist, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and then goes to tell Peter, his brother Simon, that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. We have found the Messiah, he says in John 1, 43-42. And what does Jesus say? He says, follow me, in John 1, 43. And so they follow Christ. It even says that, that Philip says, Rabbi, you are, I mean, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, in John 1, 49. So a collection of these disciples really started off seeking and seeing Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and are saved. This is a calling of Satan faith in these men's lives. That's really where it starts. You know, Levi or Matthew, this, this, this following or this, this call to Satan faith starts in Luke 5, 27-28. When Jesus comes to him and says, follow me, and he leaves his, tax, uh, uh, his occupation as a tax collector and then follows Christ. You know, our salvation wasn't much different, right? We were called by Christ. We were called and then justified and justified and glorified. So our calling, we are called to saving faith. Isaiah 41.3 says, you are God. God calls you. You are his. You are God's people. You're God's child. He's called you to saving faith. If you are a Christian, Christ called you out of darkness, right? Colossians 1.13. You were once in darkness, and he called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. This is your new life, and you've been called to saving faith. But then he also called them to full-time discipleship. Luke 5, 1-11, right? They're fishing, right? So the guys in John chapter 1, they follow Jesus and do some things, but they haven't actually fully followed him and fully been a disciple of his until much later. So in Luke chapter 5, they're fishing, right? Another story, they're fishing, and Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side. They see Jesus cast amazing amount of fish. And he says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So they left everything and followed him. So they, they became fishers of men. They left behind their former lives. They were once farmers, they were once fishermen, and now they've left that occupation. They are now full disciples. So from now on, it says, they started following Jesus. From now on. To put off your old self and put on the new self. Ephesians 4, 22-24. To follow Christ closely. To know his word. To emulate his life. To abide in his instructions. John 15. To dedicate your dreams, your goals. Everything is more, as, as, as less important as following Christ. That's discipleship. That's full-time discipleship. You know, like, some of you may like, well, I'm not going to leave my occupation to go just like live on the street and follow, some, follow Jesus. Like, there's a sense where full-time discipleship is to follow Christ closely, to know his word, to emulate his life, to throw off any type of nominalism or partial Christianity to full-time discipleship and to take up your cross and to follow closely with Christ. Too often, a nominalism or Christian nominalism is this idea that really what it is, Jesus 
and Christianity and your faith is actually like fourth or fifth on your list of importance. That you go to church somewhat, you may be involved in a small group somewhat, but really there's other things in your life that are more important. It could be your dreams, it could be your goals, it could be your careers, it could be your family, it could be your comfort. That is the reason for nominalism and the Christian life. And full-time discipleship is taking all those things and putting them on Jesus Christ as Lord. And these men did that. To have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, that's full-time discipleship. And these men did that. They were then called to apostleship. In Luke 6, 12 through 16, they, was chosen, they were chosen from, they chose these 12 men, and he named them apostles. And apostles are official representatives sent out by a person of power or authority to deliver a message or to accomplish a task. The story of Richard Holbrook is a story of an apostle, in a sense, one who is sent out by an authority figure, by or a government body, and given authority to speak on behalf of the power of authority or the body of authority. And so these men, these 12 men that were chosen by Christ, were then made apostles and given this task. Diplomats, a secretary of state, an ambassador, is one who is sent out. So Christ has chose these twelve to a particular role, and he begins to prepare and train them for the coming future. So after Luke chapter 6, Jesus then takes these men and starts teaching them directly. Very little does Jesus actually teach or do things for a crowd. He now pinpointed his ministry to these twelve men, these apostles. So Jesus' ministry is coming to an end. Death on the cross is in view, his departing fast approaching, yet his kingdom must continue to be extended, to be expanded. We know that his kingdom, what his mission was, if you go to Luke 4, 18 through 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is his mission. But his death, resurrection, and ascension is fast approaching, and if that mission is to be accomplished, it can't have to extend out. And he has to train people to extend his mission. And that's what these men were. They were trained. They were taught by Christ. So their seminary education, their applied ministry, the classwork and practicum of these apostles' future ministry starts after Luke chapter 6. What happens immediately after he chose his apostles? He does the Sermon on the Mount, which he, he teaches to these apostles directly. Then he starts to heal people, but the disciples are always with him to see what happens, to observe what Jesus is doing, to then reapply those things when Jesus officially called them out or sent them out. So he teaches them. He was, they were with him when he was a name, when he raised that, that widow's son from the dead. He went on from cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. They were there. They are hearing what Jesus is talking about. They are seeing what Jesus is doing to them to be practitioners of what Jesus is doing. So he taught them in parables. To, and you know about the parable of the sower to expect uh, what to expect when, people, when he preached the gospel to people, many will reject, few will believe. He calms the sea, he heals a man with a demon, um, he heals a woman. We, we see Jesus showing intimacy and compassion on people. 
and he prepares them for being sent out. So then in Luke 9, he sees that he calls them together. Luke 9, 1. He calls them all together. This is a joint task. He doesn't just call Peter or James or John. He calls them all. When all of them come together, they're all called. They come from their homes, their families, to gather together and to be commissioned together. This is like an elder team. This is a congregation. They're all called together, a family, a team. Everyone has a role that is valuable. Right? Just because Peter, James, and John are the kind of the part of the inner core of Jesus' ministry, they all are called together. They all have value. They all have a role in this mission for extending Christ's mission to the world, to the Gentiles, the rest of the Jews. So they start to be prepared for this ministry. The second point is that now they're they called and prepared, but now they're empowered. For extending Christ's mission. So he gave them power and authority in Luke 9. So he calls them together, then he empowers them, he gives them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. Christ gives them his own power. Okay? That's pretty significant here. Like Jesus says, I'm gonna give you my power, I'm gonna give you my authority over the demons to heal people, and I'm gonna send you out. Now, this isn't something that they had. You know, ongoing in their ministry. This is a temporary power and authority for this particular mission. So they're empowered for this mission. They're sent out to heal people now and then given the same power later on. Now, this power is only for the work he has sent them to do. It is temporary. They have yet to receive the Holy Spirit. We know in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, the day of Pentecost, that they received the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit. They start speaking in languages so that people can understand. Peter stands up and preaches the word. They start healing people, right? Acts chapter 3. But that hasn't happened yet. So Jesus is giving them this power temporarily over all the demons and to cure diseases. He gives them this power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. Then what, the, what is the point of that? Why not just give them power to teach? Why the power to heal? Miracles are a confirmation of the legitimacy of the message. What Jesus says in Luke 4, 18 through 19, that he'd come to you know, leave, uh, leave the captives free and to heal the blind and heal the sick. If Jesus never did that, he just said it, then his gospel would be false. So this is a confirmation that what he is saying and doing is actually real and good. So the disciples, all they did was preach the kingdom of God and that uh, uh, healing is going to come to the sick and, and, and the blind will now see and the deaf will now hear. But none of them actually did any of that. And there would be no confirmation of the truth. It's legitimacy. The kingdom of God has come. It's come in power to eradicate the spiritual darkness of this world. Christ is king, and he has come to rule over the created order. Miracles are an expression of his rule. The twelve disciples are instruments of his kingdom advancements. Jesus is using them. He's empowering them to further his mission, to bring the kingdom of God. They're now instruments or agents of his kingdom advancement. You think of like, um, uh, actually the picture behind me is Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was this great conqueror. He of course, he was the father of the Greek Empire. And him and his generals advanced and spread their empire. They conquered the Persian Empire. They conquered other lands. And they 
extended the influence of the Greek culture and nation. And these disciples are now empowered to extend and to advance the kingdom of God. So what are miracles? It's an interesting component to the story. Like, are we supposed to then go out, preach the gospel, and heal? Like, is that one of the issues that we just preach the gospel and we don't heal? So maybe we should be praying that we would heal people. What, are, what is the point of miracles? This is, pretty, this is a bit controversial, right? Because some would say that miracles aren't legitimate and they don't happen anymore. Some say we should be praying and seeking out miracles. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. It authenticates the message of the gospel. Philip, when he was in Samaria, healed people, and by the healing of people and the preaching of the word, joy was in the city. Much joy was in the city. So miracles confirm or authenticate the message of the gospel. Miracles happen so that the gospel may be confirmed in the hearts and minds of people. We should pray for miracles. We should pray that God would do wonders and, and signs so that people will be attuned and ears will be open and hearts will be open to the gospel and be, believe in the gospel. The third point is that we're sent out for extending Christ's mission. So we're empowered, we are prepared and called, now we're sent out for Christ, extending Christ's mission. So what does he do? So he empowers them, he, he's already prepared them, he's called them, and now he sends them out, verse 2, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those with diseases. With, with diseases. So Christ's means for extending his mission is the apostles, these disciples that he's prepared and called, to seek and save the lost, to reconcile men and women to his Father, God Almighty, the Creator. Remember, Luke 4, 18-19, to restore People, not just to heal people, not just to cure the blind and, 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 and cure the deaf and cure the disease. That's not a major point of Jesus' ministry. It is to heal the whole person. <laughs> Spiritually, we are, we are poor in spirit. We are separated from God. We are sinners that, uh, that have fallen for the glory of God. We, uh, the sins wages of our, our, of, our, of our sin is death, right? And, and the whole person and, and reconciling and, and, and healing the whole person is the mean is the point of Jesus' mission. <clears throat> and while some of us are not fully healed, we're not fully restored, yet we are waiting a full a fulfillment of our salvation. There is an already not yet aspect to our healing and to our redemption and our salvation. That we have not become exactly the people that God what we, were, what we will be in the future. We have several examples of people who were not healed physically, but who were anew. You think of the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, right? A man who was a jailer in the Roman Empire, who then hears the gospel and believes the gospel, his entire family hears the gospel. The mission of Christ, his redemption is experienced, even though he didn't receive any physical healings or anything like that. He rejoiced in his salvation. And Paul, Jesus used Paul and Silas as the instruments of extending his kingdom to this Philippian jailer, into the city of Philippi. So Christ's mission advances through his agents, geographically, culturally, nations. The word Catholic means universal, right? The universal mission of Christ is that all will hear the gospel and all will believe. 
So Christ advances that mission by sending his agents into the world to proclaim the truth of the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He sent them out to do Christ's work, to teach the kingdom of God, and to show healing, which I don't know necessarily. I've never healed anyone. I've never seen anyone healed. And I think the better way to look at this is to show compassion to people that are broken. And I think Jesus, every time he healed, he didn't just heal people with, without any compassion. He was moved by compassion and then healed people. We preach the gospel of Christ, not a gospel of their choosing, not one that is more popular, that does better to get people in the door, but one that makes a that makes uh, that heals and proclaims to the world that Christ is the means of their salvation and their redemption. We don't preach a gospel that is popular, that works really well in a marketing campaign. We don't tell any gospel of our choice. We preach the gospel of Christ. And we, we are called to show compassion. We think of Mark 6.34 when he looks upon the people uh, who he's about to feed the 5,000. What did he do before he, 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 he gave them food? What is he, it said he was, he was moved by compassion. And then he gave them food. Compassion for the lost and the helpless should be our heart. We should not just proclaim the gospel without any compassion for people. We should be moved by compassion and to proclaim the truth. A lot of times we lack compassion. That is a problem with us missionally. The reason why we don't aren't effective in missions is because we lack compassion. If we had compassion, we would pray more. If we had compassion, we would be open to opportunities, right? If we don't have compassion, we have no desire to preach the word of God or to proclaim the word or to touch someone's life and to try to help someone in their brokenness. We ignore them or indifferent to them. Compassion is a very significant point to this. Point number four is faith and wisdom for extending Christ's mission. So not only do we need preparation, not only do we need the empower, not only do we need to be sent out, we need faith and wisdom for extending Christ's mission. So he presents this laundry list of things not to bring. He says, don't take, uh, don't take uh, on, your, on your journey no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not have two tunics. Why does he say all this? Why can I not bring any money? Why can I bring a staff? Why can I only bring one tunic? What is the point of that? And I don't know exactly why to not bring a staff. And then later on in Luke, he says, don't bring, he does, he says, bring a staff, bring some money. I think the point that Jesus is making here is they have to be dependent on God. They have to trust in God. They're sent out with power and authority, God's instruments in his kingdom. What do they lack? What do they need? Right? They're already given power. They've already been prepared. What do they lack? They lack nothing. Therefore, trust and be dependent on God's means and his provision. Learn to be dependent on God for all your needs. Trust in God's provision. What does Jesus say in the Great Commission? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's going to be with you. Therefore, you lack nothing. So therefore, trust and put your faith in God's provision. He is with us. I love that, that passage where Jesus says, well, let me go back. Or the, the people say, let me go back and marry my father, then I will follow you. And Jesus, like, basically, like, rebukes them. And the, 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 dead, the, dead, will, the, the dead will bury themselves in a sense, you know. What Jesus is saying there is, is that you, this idea, well, let me first do this, then I will follow. Let me do first do this, then I will go. Is this idea that you have to prepare and you have to, you have, to have enough money or enough resources to then be able to go. And God said, be dependent on my, on my provision. 
Let me first get married. Let me first build enough income. Let me first go to seminary. Let, I'm young. I don't want to. I don't, I'll go later on in my life when I'm older and I have nothing else to live for. Then I will go. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Be dependent. Trust in me. What does he say later? He says, whatever they do, whatever, if they don't receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. What he's saying is, you've got to have wisdom here as well. We have faith. We have trust. We have dependence, but you also have to have wisdom to depart from certain ministries. Matthew 7, 6, he says, don't, don't, don't throw your pearls before dogs or, or, or swines or pigs. What is he talking about? Who are the swine? Who are the pigs that we shouldn't throw the gospel before? He's saying those who have contempt for the word of God, those who think that they don't need the word of God, those who think they're better than, than, than needing this sense of this Christianity or this salvation, those are the people, he's saying, uh, brush off the dust from your feet. Depart from them. They don't care for Christ. They want nothing to do with Christ. They sense the gospel and they sense Christ and they see it as a fragrance of death. They have hatred for the word of God. They're deniers of the treasure above all treasures. Go to those who desire salvation and everlasting joy. Those who hate it, those who want nothing to do with it, then go away, move on, depart. You have to have wisdom to do that because it's difficult to give up on people, isn't it? It's difficult. Who are the swine? Who are the ones we should depart from? It's the intellectuals who think, I don't need God. God is an intellectual cage. Therefore, I know nothing about God. That's contempt for God's word. We should shake the dust from our feet. Those who are good timers, right? Well, I've got so much living to do. I've got so much good times to have. Why would I want the gospel? It will, it's a bummer. It's, a, it's something that lowers my standard of living. Those are the people we should, we should wipe the dust from our feet. They have contempt for the word. We should, be in, we should persevere. People will reject the word. They will depart from it. We, they will want nothing to do with it. And if they want nothing to do with it, then we waste our time sharing the gospel with them because they don't want it. So the last point is urgency and dedication for extending Christ's mission. So with this sense of need to depart from those who don't want it and not taking certain, certain resources with us, we have to be urgent. It says take nothing for your journey, right? He says if you take money, if you take more things, you won't be urgent. You won't be hasteful. You won't do it with speed. He says later on, in whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Speed and haste to the work. Go to all the villages. Go to the, go to the village. If someone lets you live there, live there. Go to all the homes, share the gospel, and then leave. Move on. Be urgent. Time is wasting. Time is limited. It's not about personal gain. It's not trying to gather a bunch of followers and go, well, I got accepted in this town. People love me. They love my preaching. I'm going to therefore stay here forever and receive all this personal gain. That's my ministry. And Jesus says, reject that. Be urgent. It's not about personal gain. It's about going to the nations, every village with the gospel. Time is limited. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. What's important here is, is that the disciples were prepared. They were called. They were empowered. They had faith. They had wisdom. They were sent out. And they actually left. That may seem like not very important to you. But how many people do you know? Maybe you're one of these people that you've been taught. You've been empowered. 
You've been given money, and you never do anything. You never go anywhere. The passage that I've always mistakenly interpreted is Matthew 28, 19-20, where he says, Go and make disciples of all nations. And people interpret that as, while you go, make disciples. And that is not how you interpret that passage. It says, go and make disciples. What if all this, we just like to go about our lives and hope that something happens. That's not what you're called to do. He says, go. Go and make disciples. Actually go. Actually proclaim the gospel. Go, but never proclaim. Go and see. Go and experience, but never proclaim. How many people go on a mission trip and they share the gospel with nobody? They didn't actually go. They didn't actually proclaim. Showing compassion, touching lives. We are sent to go. We must actually go. We must actually proclaim. We must actually heal. And they went from village to village. They were urgent. They were dedicated to this work. They were dedicated. They didn't see anything. It's like, well, it's not important to me. It's not really a priority in my life. I really want to do some other things. Yeah, I got taught. Yeah, I got I was called. And yeah, I was empowered. But I have other things I want to do before I go. No, they were urgent. And they were dedicated. Very similar to Roger Hilbert. He was urgent. He was dedicated. These apostles were urgent and they were dedicated. I want to end uh, my time. I was, um, last night my wife and I went to the Evansville Philharmonic uh, uh, Symphony. They did a, a Beethoven's Ninth, went to the first and ninth symphony. I have never heard the first symphony, but we know the ninth one. Let's see, the, the third, the second song on his ninth symphony and the fourth song. The music is gorgeous, right? I mean, it's a beautiful piece of music. And the, the, compo well, the, the conductor of the Evansville Philharmonic, he's retiring, and he said something that was kind of very interesting. He mentioned the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, right? It got caught fire, and this sadness and all this money went to rebuilding it, like billions upon billions of dollars have been donated for rebuilding of the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. And he said, you know, these great pieces of architecture in the world, they, have a, they could possibly burn down, right? They could, they could go and turn into ash. They mentioned that, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, this beautiful piece of music, this great piece of music in Western civilization. He says, the good thing, the great thing about music is, is that it won't burn, right? I mean, it, it, it's not like something we're going to fear that it will burn one day and just fall into ashes. But it will die if it's never played. You know, if, a, if an orchestra never plays it before people, it will die. That was an interesting uh, statement to make because if the gospel is never preached, then people won't hear it. The gospel of Christ and the Holy Spirit is the great conductor and the orchestra is the church and the audience is the world and, and the conductor leads the, 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 the orchestra to play this beautiful music and the gospel is the most beautiful story to ever be presented as the greatest historical event ever in history and if the, the orchestra never plays the music then the world will never hear it they'll never experience its beauty they'll be deaf to it. The church is the missionary people of God. We are prepared. All of the preaching on Sunday morning and all the growth group teaching is preparation. It's not feeding you so you can get fat. It's teaching. It's preparing you for something. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're not just empowered to sit in church. You're not just empowered to be able to pray by yourself. You're empowered to be the missionary people of God. You're sent out into a mission field. You're not sent out just to your home or to your, and your job. You are sent out into the world to be empowered, to be prepared to go and preach the gospel. 
to show compassion to the world. We are a ministry of a congregation. We're not consumers. You don't come to church to consume things. You are a provider of something. You come to be taught and to be prepared to then be providers of the gospel in the world. That's what you're here for. The thought that you're a consumer of the gospel is so wrong. You're providers. If you just sit in church Sunday after Sunday, you are failing your responsibility as a member of the congregation of Christ to go and preach the gospel and show compassion to the world. The faithfulness to the gospel is the fellowship of love. The nature of the church is to show love to one another and to others. A church that does not love one another is a dead church. A church that doesn't serve one another in the world is a dead church. A church that doesn't proclaim the gospel to the world is a dead church. A church that doesn't witness the truth of the gospel and its actual activities and its life is a dead church. We have to show love for one another. We have to serve one another. We have to proclaim the gospel and we have to witness its truth in the world. We're a missionary people. We're a living hope in the midst of the world. Christ came in flesh, right? The incarnation of Christ. Christmas is about the incarnation of Christ. And the church is the incarnation of Christ's work in the world. So when the people see the church, they see the incarnation of what Christ did. What did he accomplish? The, the, the church is the creature of the gospel. The creature of new hope. The bridge between God and humanity as it witnessed to the world of redemption and satisfaction in Christ alone. And if we do not go and proclaim and show compassion, we fail to do what we are. We are creatures of the gospel. Creatures of the gospel live out the gospel. They're the living hope of it every day of their lives. Some example, ways that you at this church, and I'm saying, man, we could do far better here. I'm not like, I'm not some uh, church planner or pastor who said, yeah, everything we do here is awesome. We're a plus of everything. You should come to our church. We're the coolest church in town. That's just not the truth. And anyone who says that is full of crap. They're full of crap. This is not true. We're sinners. Our tendency as sinners is to only care about ourselves and be self-absorbent. And so that we have to push against that as a, as a community. One way that you can do this, one way that you can be proclaimers of the gospel, to show compassion, is the nursing home every, every once a month. I know sometimes being around older people is, 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 is scary or maybe it freaks you out because they're, they're hurting and they're in wheelchairs. I understand, but man, we're called to show compassion to the broken and to love those who are in need. I mean, that's a great way you can show compassion. Way, very way you can touch people in need. The evangelism team. We go out, we go out and show the gospel all the time. That's something you, you're interested in. Talk to Denton. Talk to Stan. Talk to me. That's a great way you can proclaim the gospel. To get to know people in, in the community and know if there's ways that we can show compassion to them. Growth group this summer is about evangelism training. We're going to talk about evangelism training this summer. That's a great way that you can learn and be prepared. Take what you learn into relationships. If you want to be a proclaimer of the gospel, if you want to be one sent out, if you want to be one who shows compassion and healing, you have to be prepared. You have to see yourself as one who needs to be prepared and taught. 
and find ways that you can be prepared. Find ways that you can be taught. You can talk to me, you can talk to Ditton, you can talk to Sean, you can talk to anybody else. And that is our job, is to teach and prepare you for proclaiming, for being sent out, and to heal. Let me pray. So Lord, I, I said a lot, and I don't know what fell, I don't know what nuggets landed, Lord. Maybe very little of it did. But Lord, I, I ask, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord, to understand that if we are a part of God's, your church, Lord, we're a part of the community of Christ, the body of Christ, as Christ is our head, and we're bodies of that, that we have to be a missionary people. You came with a mission. You have called your church and sent them out on mission. And that doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go to Africa, but maybe it does mean you need to go to Africa. Maybe that means you need to go to Indonesia or Nepal or somewhere else. Maybe that means you need to go down to, to downtown Evansville and find opportunities. Whatever, Lord, that you would lead them to be proclaimers and those who show compassion. As a church, Lord, we are not perfect. Lord, show us, in our, show us our errors. Show us the ways, Lord, that we have overlooked certain things. Lord, and, sh and, and give us opportunities, Lord, to proclaim your gospel and to show compassion. May we be a fellowship of love. May we be a, a fellowship that serves. May we be a fellowship of proclaimers of the gospel. May we be a fellowship of witnesses of its truth and of its power in our lives. But we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, and if I can get uh, Ryan and oh, – that's right, Ben is downstairs. So we're going to come up. And we are going to take communion together. Uh,